Well, let's open our Bibles this morning to Ephesians uh, chapter 1. We will finish up later on with I Love the Church, but uh, we'll look this morning uh, in the book of Ephesians. And let's go to the Lord in prayer, ask for his blessing upon our time in his work. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness to us in giving us your word and making known to us the mystery of your will. I pray, Lord, that as we look at your plan for all things and our place in it this morning, that you would fill us with hope and joy and confidence in the opportunity we have to participate in your work to make all things new. And we pray, Lord, that those here this morning who do not know the beauty and the glory of Christ, uh, that they would see his work to restore this world and make it new, to be something that they want him to do in their own lives. Uh, Lord, we all struggle under sickness and sin and death and broken relationships. Uh, We all are tired by the grind of this world, by the opposition of others who are against us. I pray, Lord, that you would deliver us through Jesus Christ today. And we ask in his name. Amen. The last five years in this world uh, have been, I think, like have been unlike very few periods of time in the history of this world. Uh, So many unusual events have occurred, like COVID, uh, wars. It seems, though, that one thing, the events of these last years, and even of the last century, the last hundred years, it seems one thing that they have revealed to us is this, that we can't get along in this world. There is much strife and conflict. At the beginning of time, and by the way, I've given you the full sermon manuscript there, and the reason for that is because um, the the sermon today is not particularly a notes-taking sort of a sermon. Um, We'll be going through basically the whole book of Ephesians uh, in about 40 minutes and looking at our place in what God is doing in this world. So you're welcome to follow along and read. You're welcome to just listen and take it home, and that can be your notes. That way you don't have to feel like you're going to miss anything if you don't uh, write. At the beginning of time, God created a world of order and beauty. It was a world where there was one family, one race, and one goal, service of God in a garden of paradise. But ever since man rebelled against God, the universe has been descending into greater and greater depths of chaos, conflict, and pandemonium. In response to humanity's bid for autonomy at the Tower of Babel, God confused the speech of men and scattered them across the face of the earth, isolating them from one another so that distinct cultures and values and practices sprung up. And for centuries, geography and the barriers of human language have kept each family of the earth relatively separated. 
But in modern times, humanity has been steadily chipping away at the boundaries God put in place between them. And now in this age of jet travel and internet fibers, the families of the earth have met together once again. We are closer than ever. And yet we have found that we are further apart than ever before. Our closeness only serves to show just how radically different we are from one another. And events that have transpired in recent years have pushed this fact to the forefront. The concord of the paradise of Eden has been lost. And now each man strives to create his own world for himself, a world that exists by him and for him. There are seven billion universes on the planet today. Each is mastered by one human being who lives and breathes with one goal in view to sustain his own life so he can pursue his own dream in order to satisfy his own desires. And this means that there is seemingly no uniform goal toward which all of humanity aims. There are seven billion minds at work in the world today, and no two of them is striving towards the same goal. Our desperate bid to be free of God's rule and to pursue our own agendas has produced a monster with seven billion heads. And the collective power of seven billion autonomous human beings all clawing down each other to achieve their own self-defined version of success and happiness combines to produce a world of chaos and strife. What the world needs is a single head, a single mind, a single source of life, and a unifying center of gravity, one from whom flows the life of the rest of the body, one who cares for the needs of the body, one to whom the body looks for unity, for a unifying purpose and goal, for a mastermind, one in whom the differing members may find a common life and for whom they each give up their own life in service of someone greater. That is what the world needs. And it's in that light that what Paul says in the first chapter of Ephesians is breathtaking. I'll read verses 9 and 10, and I'll paraphrase. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9. God has made known to us the mystery of his will. That mystery is according to his good pleasure. He's working out his own purposes. And these purposes he has planned out or he has set them forth in Christ Jesus. This plan that God has is for the fullness of the times. He will put it into effect when the times reach their fullness. And what is God's plan? His plan is to unite all things in Christ. Things in heaven and things on the earth. God's plan is to unite all things in Christ. Several other translations of Scripture translate that phrase like this, to sum up all things in Christ, or to bring unity to all things under Christ. The word unite that we have here in the English Standard Version and the word gather together in the King James Version means something like our word subsume. 
And the heart of this word, to gather together, to unite, the heart of it is the word for a head. God's intention is to subsume all things under Christ, to set him over all things as their one head. That is the goal at which God intends this splintered universe will arrive. All things united under the headship of Christ. One mind, one life, one goal. And by the sovereign power of God, the universe will arrive at this goal. Everything finding its source and its goal in one head, Christ. He will become the unifying center of all creation. There will not be a stray molecule in all the universe. All of it will derive its life from Christ. It will function under the lordship of Christ. It will all operate in the interests of Christ. And all of it will pursue Christ as its one and only goal. Heaven and earth shall be won by Christ. And Isaiah looks forward to this day in Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 4. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. Creation will be subject to Christ. This is God's grand design for the entire universe to sum up all things in Christ. And that will be a glorious day. But must we wait until the fullness of the times to experience the joy of Christ as head over all things? Is the power of God by which he will subject all things to Christ reserved only for a future day? Or is it in operation today? The answer to that final question is a resounding yes. There is a sphere today over which God has placed Christ as head. And the power by which God will subject all things to Christ and place him at their head one day, he has placed on exhibit today. Where may we see in microcosm, as a miniature display today, where may we see the power of God to unite all things in Christ? Look with me at verses 18 through 23. In verse 16, Paul says, I pray that, in verse 18, he's praying that middle of the verse, that you may know what? What does Paul pray we would know? Well, several things, but the main thing we'll focus on is in verse 19. I pray that you will know, verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of, of his power toward us who believe. Paul wants us to know of God's great power. That power accords or is according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. 
What is Paul praying for in these verses? He's praying that our eyes might be opened so that we will come to a fuller knowledge of certain things. And one of those things Paul prays we would understand is the effect of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul says in these verses that God wrought an act of mighty, unspeakable power when he raised Christ from the dead. In the resurrection, not only did Christ take to himself new life, but he also took to himself a new position. God gave him to the church as head over all things. God set Christ as the head of the body, the church. And Paul develops the significance of what it means that Christ is head of the body. And he develops that significance in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And these verses are probably familiar with them, probably verses 8 and 9 you know the best, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that's not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Paul says in, verse, in chapter, tw- chapter 2, that the saints, verses 4 and 5 and 6, have been raised up, made alive, seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And that only makes sense if they're members of his body. For if he has been raised up, then they too have been raised up and seated with him in the heavenly places. In other words, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God brings to life all those who are united with Christ and joins them to him as the members of his body. He joins those members to his body, and by that he joins them to Christ their head. And as a result, the church, a body of many members, exists in unity because of the union of each member with Christ the head. And Paul develops this idea in the second half of chapter 2. If you look above verse 11, at least in my Bible, the heading there is one in Christ. And you can read about this in verses 11 through 22. But in those verses, Paul is saying this. In the resurrection of Christ, God brought to life a new man with Christ at its head. And the surprising thing about this new man, this new body, though, is that It's unlike Old Testament Israel. Old Testament Israel was a body composed of only one nation. This new body, this new man, is composed of both Jews and Gentiles. It's a multi-ethnic body. It's a brand new race of human beings. A new man, a new humanity. And this new humanity is actually a representative slice of the world that we inhabit today. We live in a multi-ethnic world. And this new body that God has created by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, uniting them all to Christ as head, this new body is also a multi-ethnic body. But unlike the world we inhabit today, this body is united as one under Christ's headship. It is a body that is characterized, verse 14, for he himself is our peace. Verse 15, it's characterized by peace. Verse 16, it's characterized by reconciliation. 
by a termination of hostilities. Verse 17, it's characterized by peace. And verse 17 again, it's characterized by peace. That is what the world does not have today. There is no peace in the world today, but there is in the body of Christ. Because the unity of the body is founded on the gospel reality of Christ's resurrection. This body, this church, is a miniature preview of what the universe will be one day when God unites it all under the headship of Christ. In other words, at the resurrection of Christ, God began his final march to gather back together his fragmented and alienated creation. And although we await the final accomplishment of that regathering, God is already at work now to bring it to pass. He is at work in the church to subsume under Christ's headship people from every family upon the earth, Jew, Gentile, Eastern, Western, white, black, male, female. And by Christ and his resurrection, he is uniting them all into one new man. These who previously were his enemies and these who previously were enemies of one another. And this means that in the body of Christ, everyone, Jew, Gentile, every ethnicity, they all stand equally as members of the body of Christ, not because of their decision or merit to be part of this, but because, Paul tells us in chapter 1, verse 4, because of God's electing love and glorious grace. It is his gracious gift that we are a part of this. We are united to Christ. We are members of his body, not ultimately, first of all, because we chose to be, but because he chose us to be before the foundation of the world. Chapter 1, verse 4. You are a part of this because of the effectual call of God. It is your calling to be a part of this body. You are a member of a brand new human race. You are no longer in Adam. You are in Christ. And so you have a new calling, a new vocation. And such a lofty vocation or calling can mean only one thing, a different lifestyle, a different walk. And so Paul explains in chapters 4 through 6 the implications of these great gospel truths. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, on the basis of God's work to create a new human race that you are a part of by his glorious, gracious gift, Therefore, I, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. If we are God's chosen objects of love, then this has certain implications as to how we walk. And it makes a profitable study to go through Ephesians 4 through 6 and to mark every occurrence of the word walk. I think it shows up like eight or nine times in these last three chapters of Ephesians. And then you can examine each passage to see how the Christian's walk will look as he comes to a greater understanding of and appreciation for the love that God has displayed to him by choosing to incorporate him into the body of Christ. But so far in our analysis of the book of Ephesians, we've skipped over a chapter. It's chapter 3. Chapter 3 stands between the section in chapter 2 where, God, where Paul exposits for us the work of God to unite Jew and Gentile into a new man, into the body of Christ. Between chapter 2 and chapter 4, 
where he exhorts us to walk as our calling requires. In the middle is chapter 3. And chapter 3 concludes, beginning in verse 14, with a prayer. And the wording of chapter 3 shows us that Paul's original intent in putting this prayer where it is, his original intent was to link this prayer in verses 14 through 19 back with the end of chapter 2. And we know this because of the way chapter 3 verse 1 reads. Look at chapter 3 verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, and then his thought breaks off and he takes a little rabbit trail, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Where does Paul pick his thought back up? He picks his thought back up in verse 14. Compare the first part of verse three, uh, verse 1 and the first part of verse 14. Verse 1, for this reason, I, Paul, what? Chapter 3, verse 14, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. In other words, the prayer that Paul prays in verses 14 through 21, that prayer connects back to chapter 2, verse 22. Because Paul intended to launch into that prayer in chapter 3, verse 1, until he took his little digression, his little rabbit trail. Why does Paul include a prayer at this point in the book? It's because of this. Remember that walk he urges us towards in chapter 4, verse 1? Walking worthy of our calling. That walk comes only as a result of the full understanding of the calling he's exposited for us in chapters 1 and 2. That we in Christ stand before God as his beloved elect, as members of his body. His chosen ones. In other words, the walk he urges in chapters 4 through 6 is the outgrowth of a full understanding of the love of God that he's manifested to us in choosing us to be members of the body of Christ in chapters 1 through 2. So why does he offer the prayer then? He offers the prayer because, as Paul says, look at chapter 3, verse 18. He offers the prayer because comprehending this display of God's love in Christ and all of its implications is impossible. Look at chapter 3, verse 18. Paul prays that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints the breadth, length, height, depth, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. If you're going to walk according to the calling he's given you in chapters 4 through 6, You've got to know what the calling is, his calling that he's extended to you in love. How are you going to understand that? Paul says it's impossible to comprehend the love of God. And so that's why he prays. He prays in verses 14 through 19. And here I'm just going to sum up verses 14 through 19. He prays that God would put his resurrection power into operation once more and pour it by his indwelling spirit into the hearts of these Gentiles for this purpose, that by faith they might come to a greater realization that Israel's Messiah dwells in their hearts as Gentiles and that they are loved by God for Christ's sake more than can be measured. The love of God for them surpasses knowledge, but Paul prays that they might comprehend its measure still more until 
It alters their walk and they are filled up to and become all that God intends them to be. But why is God intent on putting all of this on display? Why is he intent on creating this miniature preview to display his power to unite all things in Christ? And Paul gives us the reason why God has done all of this in chapter 3. We're going to work our way down to the answer to that question. But in working our way down to the answer to that question, we are working our way down to the answer to a very similar question, which is this. What is God doing in the church today? What is this thing called the church all about? What is its significance? The significance is this. Paul wants us to understand just how high the stakes are for which he prays and toward which he exhorts the Ephesian saints. What is God doing in creating this preview? What is he doing in creating this body? What is he doing in creating this church? Here's what he's doing. Chapter 3, verse 6. God made known to Paul a mystery. The mystery is this, verse 6, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The mystery is that God has united Jew and Gentile into one body. They're partakers of the same promise. They're members of the same body. Why? Why did God do this? Paul's answer is in verse 7 through 11. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given me by the working of his power. I was made a minister of that gospel, verse 8 now. This gift of the ministry of the gospel was given to me, even though I am the least of all the saints, Paul says. It was given to me so that I should preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light or to unveil what is the administration of this mystery, God's plan for all men to see. God wants them all to see his plan that he's going to create all things in unity under Christ. Paul was given the mission to proclaim those things. But this mystery was up to this point hidden in God. Verse 9. Paul was given the commission to bring to light for everyone this plan of the mystery, which up to this point had been hidden for ages in God who created all things. And why was God working out this plan? What was his purpose? His purpose was this, that through the church, the intricate wisdom of God, verse 10, might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This is nearly identical to what we saw in chapter 1, verses 9 through 10. God made known to Paul the mystery of his will, his plan, which was this, that through the gospel, the Gentiles would become fellow members in the body of Christ, of which he is the head. This was the mystery that, Paul, that God commissioned Paul to proclaim all over the Gentile world of his day and to write it down for us to read that God was creating a new human race, a new gathering of his people. The head of this race would not be Adam anymore. It would now be Christ. It would not be the gathering of a single ethnicity like Israel was. Instead, it would be a multi-ethnic body of Jew and Gentile 
And why was God creating this new body in Christ called the church? Why would God include you as a Gentile in the body of Christ? It was for this purpose. Verse 10. That the angels might look upon the church and behold the glory of God on grand display in her. In other words, if we were suddenly transported out of this world and into the heavenly realms and we looked about to see what it was that God was constantly drawing the attention of heaven to, it would be this. Small, ragged groups of people who have covenanted to pursue Christ together. They're from all different walks of life and ethnicities, social ranks, economic strata. At one time, they were rebels against Christ's lordship. They lived for themselves, seeking to carry out their own desires. And they streamed through history alongside the mass of ungodly humanity, rushing headlong against the current of God's law to disobedience. They were lawless men and women, committing immorality, and theft, foolishly ignoring God, enslaved to their passions in the pursuit of pleasure. They were filled with envy and malice. They were hated by others, and they hated one another. They thought the news of a crucified Messiah was foolishness, and they were convinced that life was best obtained by following their own hearts, seeking their own pleasures, and pleasing themselves. Their understanding was dark, They were ignorant of God, and their hearts were hard. They had given themselves over to the practice of all kinds of impurity, and they had pursued it with an insatiable appetite for more. They lived their lives to satisfy their own desires, and when they could not obtain for themselves what they had set their hearts upon, they turned to covetousness, quarreling, disputes, and murder. Their unsatisfied desires led to family conflict, racial conflict, generational conflict, social conflict, and in the end, all-out war at every level. The conflict they perpetuated tore their society apart, and the primary source of it all lay in their own rebellion against God. They, along with the rest of humanity, lived to break free of God's righteous and holy law and to establish for themselves their own system of self-government, self-preservation, and self-actualization. The single greatest event that has occurred this week on the earth is happening right now as small groups of these former rebels meet together as blood-washed and redeemed sinners in love for Jesus Christ and for one another. God has reached down in love and plucked them out of the throng, imparting unto them his very life through Christ, canceling out their debts against him, writing his law upon their hearts and incorporating them into the body of Christ. The conflict is over. The rebellion is past. And their self-centered pursuits have been exchanged for an avid and unrelenting pursuit of Christ. They love one another. And there is no explanation for it except the power of the gospel to unite in Christ, both Jew and Gentile. And by God's work in them through his Holy Spirit, they are continually being formed into the image of Christ as shepherds stand and proclaim to them the word of Christ each week in their gatherings. And together 
They strive to live out these gospel truths as they have been proclaimed to them. These people talk about Christ. They think about Christ. They live for Christ. They die for Christ. For them, to live is Christ. They count all things lost for the excellency of knowing Christ Jesus. In everything they long for Christ to have their preeminence. These who once lived their lives for themselves, now they live for Christ. He is their all in all. He is their life. And by their witness to Christ, others too are being added to his body. God is pouring out his glorious grace upon others through them. And they do it all together. They worship Christ together. They grow in Christ together. They live in Christ together. They celebrate the work of Christ together in the ordinances. They need one another. And they know it. They humbly submit themselves to the ministry of other members of the body of Christ. So that the body is built up into their head, Christ. They are a people for his name. This is the body. The body of Christ. And in this bodiness, in the unity of the body, God's glory is on display before angelic eyes. This is the big picture. This is what God is doing in the earth today. This is what he has set forth for angels to look into and marvel. He is manifesting his wisdom, his power, his grace, and his love in the church by Christ through the gospel. In other words, the biggest events unfolding today in God's universe are not the explosions of supernovae in outer space. It isn't the technological advances of modern science. It isn't the fight to preserve freedom and conservatism. It isn't the march to end racial oppression. It isn't the rebounding economy or the political maneuvering in Canberra or Beijing or Moscow. It isn't your husband's promotion at work or your upcoming wedding. You could devote your life to any one of those things, but that would only be the sideshow. The characters involved in each of those are only walk-ons, and God's spotlight is not primarily upon them. There are no press releases in heaven about any of those things. Instead, the big thing is the construction of the body of Christ. The act at center stage in God's universe today is his work to call out a holy people for his Son. That's what gets the press in heaven. That is what God calls the, the attention of the angelic host to, to his work, to present, to prepare, and to present to his son a bride as a trophy of his grace. And he's doing all of this so that the angels will look on in wonder. There is in all of us an insatiable drive to join ourselves to a cause that is bigger than ourselves. We want our lives to count for something big. We understand that pursuing our own goals is not the way to achieve the fulfillment we crave. If you want to be part of something big, something really big, give yourselves to the local church, to the body, to the other members. 
the construction of the body of Christ, the local church is the biggest thing happening in the world today. It's the thing that God has put his omnipotence and his grace and his wisdom behind to ensure that the goal is achieved. And when God sets forth on a mission, he will never fail. So what does all of this look like for us? How do you participate with God in his plan to display his glory to the angelic hosts and the demonic hordes in the heavenlies? And here are eight things. This is why we join together as churches. There's no greater cause we could commit ourselves to than ensuring the health and stability of a local church. We often think that the drama of God's kingdom happens overseas on the mission field. There's not much happening here to see. So if you're truly surrendered to the Lord and you want to contribute to the growth of Christ's kingdom, you go overseas to the mission field or you enter into the ministry. The rest of us aren't doing much towards God's kingdom. But that conception is entirely wrong. God's great goal is not, first of all, the conversion of all the heathen. That's a goal that's on the way to something else. Why does God want to see the heathen converted? It is so that healthy churches may be constructed, so the body of Christ might grow. Because in the body of Christ, his glory is on display by the gospel. And the construction of healthy local churches happens every Sunday around the world in local churches. That is where kingdom action is happening. And so commit yourselves to be jointly responsible to the health and stability of a local church and its members through church membership. Join yourself to God's mission by committing yourself to a local church. The second thing is show up. There's nothing going on in Brisbane or anywhere else in the world today more important than the gathering of the local church. God is pressing the heads of the angels over the portals of heaven so that they look down upon these gatherings of Christ's people and he is pointing there. Do you see it? It's my wisdom, my power, my love, and my grace on display. So show up and take part in the drama of it every Sunday morning. Thirdly, listen intently. The preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ through his word is how God forms and grows and matures the body. It's what Paul says. It was given to me to preach this, so it happened. It's God's means of maturing you and your fellow believers, of growing you up into Christ your head. Preaching is not simply an opportunity for you to determine whether or not you agree with the theology of the preacher. It's not even primarily an opportunity for you to be encouraged once again. When God's word is preached, he is speaking. And preaching is one of the times each week when we hear God speaking to us. So listen to him intently. Submit yourself to the preaching of God's word. It's God's means of changing you to more faithfully follow Christ and of equipping you to help others grow in Christ to the glory of God as well. So listen to the preaching of God's word like the glory of God depended upon it, because it does. Fourthly, help others to grow in Christ. There's no cause more glorious than seeing a fellow believer grow in Christ. It's a lot better than serving yourself. God puts believers together in churches because we don't grow up into Christ apart from the body. We've seen this. It's the body that causes the growth of the body, Paul says in Ephesians 4.15. 
And you are responsible for the spiritual growth and health and well-being of the other saints that God places alongside of you by covenant in a local church. This means life-on-life relationships of discipleship and example and mutual spiritual concern for the well-being of our brothers and sisters in Christ. It means we read the Bible and pray together. It means if you find something spiritually profitable that someone else has written, take it and show it to somebody else. Enjoy it together. Help each other to grow. Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed, James tells us. And above all, love one another fervently. So help others to grow in Christ. Fifth, share your faith. God grows the body of Christ for his glory through the gospel. The gospel is a message to be believed. And the scriptures tell us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So speak of Christ to those God brings across your path. Your proclamation of Christ is the means God will use to generate faith in them and bring them to him. So share your faith. Number six, fight for unity. Strife in the church destroys the picture. There's nothing worth fracturing the unity of a local church over other than an attack upon the gospel that creates that unity to the glory of God. Don't settle for a a counterfeit unity, a, a, a unity, something that holds the body together other than Jesus Christ. A commonality that's located in anything other than Christ and Christ alone. And so we do all we can to endeavor to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Seventh, give to the local church. There's no cause to which you could commit your earthly treasure that will bring more glory to God than the local church. It's the biggest thing he's doing in the world today. God says the local church is the primary location today in which his glory and his grace is on display. And number eight, pray for your local church. Any prayer you pray for the success and health of a local church is a prayer that God delights to answer. Is he going to say, no, that's not really very important. I don't think I'll answer that prayer. Prayer for the health and stability of your local church is a means by which you can labor in tandem with the God of the universe to accomplish the greatest thing he's doing in the earth today. You can contribute to God's greatest goal from your bedroom floor on your knees. Or better yet, gathered together with other members of the body of Christ, praying together for the health and success of the local church. So pray for your local church. Today, God is creating the body of Christ. And he's doing it by his indomitable power, his inscrutable wisdom, his sovereign love, and his glorious grace. And that is precisely the reason the glory of God's wisdom and power and love and grace are on display in the church. The church is the product of them. And so in the church, we see them on display. God's chief goal is to glorify himself. And today, he's doing that through the church, through you and me together. This mission... The local church is a guaranteed investment 
It's the big deal in the world today. You know, one of the most common objections that unbelievers throw at Christians is this. The church is full of what? Hypocrites. We say we follow one head and then we live for ourselves. And that's why the world is full of strife today. Because we all go our own way. And if you want what you want and I want what I want, eventually we're going to run into each other. There's going to be strife and conflict. But Jesus Christ's work to unite us together begins by his death for us. And he calls us to lay down our lives for each other's sake. Not to hold on to them as dear, to live our lives for ourselves in the church. We live our lives for one head. And as we all live for one head and one goal, one source of life, glorifying one person, guess what happens to the church? The conflict disappears and there is true unity and love. We love as Christ loved. And that is the greatest evidence to the world that Jesus Christ is alive today. If he rose up to create the church by pouring out his spirit, then when the church manifests a supernatural unity, many ethnicities, one body. Look at the world, many ethnicities, many different wars and conflicts. When we manifest the unity of the spirit, that says that Jesus Christ is alive as Lord. And that he has the power to deliver human beings from their selfishness and self-centeredness to restore their relationship to God and to restore their relationship to one another. But that all requires that we endeavor to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. So Lord willing, we will have opportunity to begin to practice that unity together in the coming months, weeks and months or two, whenever the Lord brings us to that point. And then it will be our responsibility uh, to endeavor to maintain the unity that the Spirit has created. Our one head is Christ. It's not me. It's not you. It's not what you think. It's not what I think. It's not what I want. It's not what you want. It is Christ and his body, the church that displays his power and his grace and his love and his wisdom. And it displays it not only to our fellow men. God has put all of this on display for the heavens to look on in wonder. If God wanted to show the angels how wise he was, how powerful he was, what would he do? Would he create a new world? He would create a world that would be destroyed by sin and separated by sin. And then he would send his son to rise from the dead. He would show his great power in the resurrection of Christ from the dead. And he would continue to display that power by, through the resurrection of Christ, sending his spirit to unite together people who used to fight with each other and who used to fight against God. And by his spirit, so changing them that they love God, they love Christ, and they love one another. And that would display the wisdom and the power and the grace of God to angels who look on. And that's what he's doing in the church today. Lord, thank you for sending us your spirit. Lord, I pray 
that this local church that we long to see uh, begun here would for its lifetime manifest the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace i pray that no human being save christ would be the head and that we would find all of our life all of our joy uh, all of our peace with god all of our unity in him and him alone lord we all follow the same head and following him means giving up ourselves and our own plans and pleasures and wishes so for his sake lord i pray that we would look into the scriptures find his will and together with one mind strive for the faith the gospel and not be divided and we pray lord that you would add others with whom we can manifest this unity lord it is exciting in a city like brisbane to see you bringing together people of different ethnicities people of different backgrounds people of different economic abilities and possessions people with different colors of skin people of different genders both male and female in one body receiving one another in the lord as christ has received them and we ask, Lord, that you'd give us the joy of being part of that this week. Help us to understand, to comprehend the immeasurable, the unknowable love of God. It is so vast and great. You have poured it out upon us and made us part of this plan of yours. You've given us your spirit who brings to us eternal life. You've given us the blessing, the privilege of gathering with your people in unity and love. Would we don't receive that out in the world? We are cast out in the world but in the church we find god's love and power on display through the love of our brothers and sisters for us and i pray lord that you would give us gratitude for christ who has made all of this possible who has risen up from the dead to unite us together to cause us to love as he loves and then to include us in the joy of loving one another and of being united together in him Lord, help us to walk this week worthy of that calling as children of light and not as children of the darkness. And we ask in Christ's name. Amen.